Hello, you are listening to the Scouted Football Podcast with me, Joe Donahue. And today's episode is a very special one indeed, and not just the esteemed company I have sitting next to me on our virtual studio. Uh, the summer transfer window has come to a close in early October, and it was pre- predictably a whirlwind deadline day with plenty of moves that make sense. Uh, lots of others that don't, uh, but plenty of rumours um, swirling, and, and I'm fairly sure there'll have been multiple here we go sent between friends on deadline day. Um As you might have guessed, that is exactly what we're going to be discussing today. Lots to unpack from a window that really accelerated towards the final weeks, as per usual. Um, No Jadon Sancho to speak of at Manchester United, but we've got the next best thing on the Scouted Football podcast. Um, Sam Tai of Bleacher Report and the BR Football Ranks podcast. Um, Sam, it's it's great to have you on and, and equally good to have somebody else with a strong Irish surname on here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Good to good to be on, guys. Uh, appreciate you having me on. I've uh, got, I think, every single Scouted handbook, just to show my credentials there early on, just to make sure everyone knows I'm a huge fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, so thank you for those. Thank you for the great service you provide. And hey, we had an original long list of players to talk about today. And, and I had to admit to Joe that, you know, some of these players, the only things I know about them is what I've read in the Scouted handbook. So we had to take them off because, you know, it's a, it's a resource uh, even for me as well. I've got a, I cast a wide eye across football, but I can't possibly keep track of everybody but we'll cover some ground today won't we yeah definitely and and that's what I was going to draw on next it was you know you've been a long time supporter of the work we do at Scouted and you know we're for that we're very grateful um loving the fact that you've plugged the handbooks after a minute and 40 seconds of recording um but that's uh you know that, that's a side point but Steve, Stephen, Stephen has stayed in my spare room in London, right? Yes, he has. Stephen Gavin, he has. he's been. We, I took him to a Fulham game, uh, the playoff where 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 Ryan Sessegnon, uh and Fulham beat Derby, and then there was a pitch invasion. So Stevie was Stevie was staying in my spare room that night. We go way back, me and Scouted. Yeah, Steve did a lot of that uh, around the time that he came over to the UK. Uh, I remember sort of sharing the living room with him at, uh, at Scouted founder uh, Tom's place in, in Nottingham, and that was that was uh, that was an interesting uh, few days. But yeah, we, we caught uh, the under-17 um, Euros final uh, at, in Rotherham of all places. Bloody mm. hell. Um, but yeah, uh, it was, uh, he, he, gets his, he gets his way around despite being all the way in Australia, does Steve. Um, just back to you, Sam. Um, you're, you're, you're a co-host of, of the BR Football Ranks podcast uh, with Jack Collins, um, w- which is an excellent listen. Um, if that isn't on anybody's regular podcast rotation, um, there's, there's a back catalogue of episodes there, which are fantastic. Um, Taking it right back to the beginning, though, um, you're clearly, you know, one of one of the bigger names in football journalism um, now. Um, what what made you want to get into to that world of, of things? Um, I think it was just that I I played an absolutely incessant amount of football manager from about age eighteen to twenty one. So it took me through the college exams of which I did very little studying for because I was doing a great Wigan athletic save um, and into uni where I didn't do a lot of studying either because I mostly just played football manager and it kind of occurred to me that as I was watching games and playing this game and playing FIFA and just basically living and breathing football um, in any way possible it occurred to me that once university was finished and I was going to go and have to enter the real world then I was going to be pretty pretty miserable if I wasn't able to spend a lot of my time focusing on football so I thought no, I'm not good enough to play I don't have any badges or any qualifications like I guess what I need to do is start writing and maybe try and enter the enter the football world on a daily basis via journalism and stay connected to it on a daily basis I allow myself to wake up you know and think about football which is ultimately all I've wanted to do for the last 10 years and fortunately that is exactly what I've been able to do because of my job so really it was about just 
that love for the game and that like that that connection and just the want to continue to stay connected and and really not have to enter the real world <laughs> has to be said if anybody who's listening to this uh, podcast who, who's a personal friend of mine there'll be extreme number of parallels um there in uh, <laughs> in in what you've just said to to my own personal situation at that stage of my life as well um but you you know you you've been working with bleacher report for some time now um you know you've done some great work over there with with the likes of dean and jack um what is sort of the some of the most exciting things that that you've done while while working there well i think um yeah, I've been there for about eight years now. So I've been through all sorts of different iterations of, uh, and styles of content, like as, as Bleach Report has kind of shifted one way to the other. Basically, about every six months, they rip everything up and start again uh, because they try to move very swiftly with analytical trends and they try different things. And, you know, they install a studio and do Facebook live shows and they get rid of that and do three minute videos and they get rid of that and do a podcast. And to be honest, get rid of that as well because we've been doing the podcast for just shy of two years but uh we won't be with bleach report for much longer so next week we start a new chapter and i guess if you are a listener or you're interested then see what happens next week um but the podcast definitely over the last few years has given us some really amazing opportunities and as i was drawing up a list of guests that we've had on the pod that have either opened for us so given our intro intro line to welcome to the pod or we've we've just interviewed i mean it's quite remarkable really when you look back at it we've got justin clivert merrid demorel uh weston mckenney alfonso davies marcus rashford thomas muller it's 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 an interesting set of names we're really really proud of it actually one of the best ones maybe suitable for the scouted audiences we had we had a, a full hours conversation with the head of liverpool's academy alex inglethorpe um and it was about Trent's rise and how he used to coach Andros Townsend when he was like 12 and stuff like that. It was a really interesting view on on player development, which is obviously something that the scouted takes a look at a lot. So all sorts of highlights there, to be honest. I mean, get, going to Munich and spending sort of 15, 20 minutes with Alfonso Davies. And on the same day, actually, I met Chris Richards outside, just bumped into him. You can't mistake Chris Richards and his, his hair. Mm-hmm. Um, that was that was a hell of a day, to be honest with you. So there's been some really, really cool highlights. Oh, and Christ, Virgil van Dijk. <laughs> I forgot that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, we got a quick word with Virgil van Dijk at the Ballon d'Or ceremony as well, which was interesting. Can't be forgetting that one, can we? I know he's just lost 7-2 to Villa, but I mean, we can't be forgetting that he is probably still one of the best defenders in world football, yeah. Mm. Um, not, maybe, maybe not as good as Fonzie might be in a few years, but I suppose they play in different positions, really, so can't directly <laughs> compare. But yeah, East Mamba and Fonzie on the same day. Now, that is that is a scouted football dream. Yeah. Um, but back to uh, back to today's topic, and, and that is, of course, uh, transfers. Um, there weren't any big moves for any of those players that you just mentioned um, there, apart from Weston McKenney, um, who obviously um, switched from Schalke to Juventus, which is a great move um, for, for all fans of the US uh, national team. Um, but when I, when I sent over this plan uh, for, for the podcast, at, I think around 5 p.m. on deadline day, I thought, yeah, there'll, there'll probably be a few moves that, w- that go through in the interim. Um, not the heaps upon heaps that were finalised in the final six hours of the window. I don't know what I was expecting, um, but we had um, Mikel Cuisance moved late, joining uh, Olympique Marseille, um, Matteo Genduzzi swapping Arsenal for Hertha Berlin, um, Federico Chiesa signing for Juventus from Fiorentina. You know, all very interesting switches um, that were confirmed late on. Um, 
the way this is going to go, though, is is that we'll we'll take it league by league, um, starting with La Liga and, and ending with Liga. Uh, and, and Sam and I are going to divulge our, our favourite incoming transfers within each league uh, and why, which I'm hoping I'm hoping will lead to a little bit of de- debate um, because you know there, there might be a few that we disagree on. Uh, there might be a few that we definitely certainly do agree on. Um, but just beginning with uh, with La Liga. Sam, I'll let you go first because I know you're itching to to see your favourite transfer. Um, but who's who's been your favourite incoming uh, in in La Liga this season? It's not just La Liga; it's it's across the world. And uh, it's I, I mean, people possibly won't know this, but I have been a Granada fan for about four years. Um, I went to a game in 2016, uh, and I just happened to sort of. I was basically on holiday there and I just sort of strolled along and thought, ah, I'll give this a go. No worries. Like Granada were still part of the Pozzo dynasty at the time, you know, with the Watford Udinese connection. Um, and you could really see that. I'm just going to get the um, the lineup as well, because this is basically what really drew me in that day is the the fact that they beat Levante 5-1 and the place was electric. And it was it was in uh, it was in April, uh, I think. So um, it was really important to in, in terms of avoiding relegation. And the lineup, mate, the lineup <laughs> had so so Cristiano Biraghi at left back on loan. Abdullah Decore on loan from Watford. You know, he joined in January and then got loaned to Granada for six months before he joined Watford. I did not know that. That's so he, they had Biraghi and Decore, they had Ruben Rochina, they had Isaac Success, Adalberto Peñaranda, oh. and then and then you've got like Ricardo Costa, like he was like 36 at the time, just holding things together at the back. You had Yusuf El Arabi, who you know only recently scored and knocked Arsenal out of the Europa League for Olympiacos. Mm-hmm. He scored a hat trick that day. Peñaranda stepped off the bench, and it was just they played against Giuseppe Rossi and Davison up front, which I also loved. And just the whole thing just took me. And ever since then, I've basically just been following them and. All right, they got relegated the next year. That didn't go very well, but uh, bounced back. Obviously, incredible season. And last season, we saw Yanahel Herrera on loan at Granada, and he was amazing. And I am shocked and surprised, but delighted that they got him back for another year because Yanahel Herrera is just like one of my favourite players. I mean, what we've actually seen from him this season, we know he's a incredibly tenacious and, and hardworking player with with good discipline and good tactical nous and. You'd maybe peg him as a destroyer or a box-to-box. And yet this year he's played as like basically a number 10. And he's already scored at least three goals. I've, I'm losing count. It might be three, it might be four. Like he's now entering the box and he's actually turns out he's a very good header of the ball, good attacker of the ball. He's now a goal scorer as well as all of the other things. He can play six, eight, ten to a really high level. And he has that commitment and that aggression that you love in a player. He takes it really seriously. I'm running out of like I'm running out of ways to praise Yanhel Herrera at this point, and the fact that Granada got him back on loan again for a second season was just amazing. Yeah, I mean, just just describing that uh, that little scenario you found yourself in in 2016, uh, a Granada home game, winning five one in April, just as the weather's starting to pick up, um, and obviously a, a packed out stadium, no doubt. Um, with that mm. lineup, you know Adalberto Peñaranda, who we absolutely fell in love with, and um, it scouted um, from the 2017 uh, Under 20 World Cup, which was the same Venezuela team that that Yangel Herrera was in. Um, mm. I actually sent a message to to the scouted chat the other day with a, a crying emoji of saying uh, Peñaranda has been loaned to CSKA Sofia for the season in Bulgaria. Yeah. Um, 
you know, we had we had such high hopes for him. But yeah, that's that must have been such an experience, uh, and to see you know th- those players in the flesh. So I can I can I, to not, maybe not to the same degree, but I can I can sort of understand where the where the loving for Herrera comes from. Um, but as as you mentioned, you know they've you've they've got him back for another season. Um, this is his fourth consecutive loan in as many years. Um, this year and, and last year, as you said, spent at Granada, where rightly so, he's been absolutely superb. Um, so versatile, but so arduous, so industrious uh, in his work. I, I mean, do you think that he's just a player who, who who needs a home at this point in his career? You know, 22, 23, starting to settle at a club. Would that would that be good for him at, at Granada? I mean, I didn't see like much of him like I didn't watch him very regularly at say like New York City. So I don't I can't I can't speak to that really that time. But I mean he seems to have taken on every loan move and challenge with a plum, hasn't he? I don't he's mm. he hasn't really ever stood still. He's only got better and better and better. And whether or not that's to do with the fact that the loan moves that he's picked out have just tended have just happened to be like very good and very conducive to progress. And obviously with Granada going back into a similar situation and playing European football. So again, it's another step forward because they qualified for the Europa League. That makes sense. Maybe it's just a very steady kind of Martin Odegaard, you know, rise through a series of loans before you eventually get to the point where you're ready. And I'll be honest, like, Yanhel Herrera, I was told in the summer, had a 15 million release clause, uh, euros, which expired at a certain point, but everybody missed it. Granada were never going to be able to pay that. They just don't have that kind of budget, particularly since they hadn't even qualified for Europe at that point. They still had to pay three separate qualifiers. Now, since they've qualified for Europe, they've actually bought Luis Suarez, you know, the other one from mm-hmm. Zaragoza, um, for, for about 15 million euros in total. So they do have the budget now. But back when Herrera was signed, they weren't in Europe. So the budget was very constrained. And what I was thinking was, surely a smart club somewhere is going to come in for him here. Like, Monchi must have eyes on this at Sevilla. He got, technically, I think he got offered informally to Valencia in the in the conversations for Ferran Torres and Valencia declined. That's stupid, particularly since they ended up losing Dani Perejo and Francis Coquelin in the same kind of two-week period. That was insane. And also just like I remember thinking Arsenal, like if you if you can't stump up for Thomas Partey and you you can't get our over the line, and these are all slightly different players, but you could do a lot worse than pick up Yanahel Herrera and put him in your midfield. I, I really think he is actually already that good. And again, just count my blessings really that I get to watch him in a Granada strip for another year. Hmm. I was going to say he needs to be careful um, from your perspective that he doesn't get so good that there's going to be calls for a recall at Manchester City um, at the end of the season um, and, and also for, for, for other clubs as well because yes Granada might be playing European football this, this season but traditionally they're not one of Spain's biggest clubs um, so you know that if he does do well in La Liga for a second consecutive year you know I mean Valencia Best not to to say about you know how how they've been run and how how they've let their players go and that sort of thing. Um, but other better run clubs, you know, they might they might pounce on that. So I can see I can see why you know you're kind of enjoying having Yangel Herrera at Granada for as just, for as long as you actually can. Just enjoy it while it lasts. And City, it's a good point you make about City and like obviously could get recalled and play. And I think he fits their model as well for the deepest line player because he's mm. also got the he's six foot. And that is that is one of the things that one of the so a lot of the top teams 
are ensuring they have in holding midfield now is someone who is six foot plus, someone like in that Fabinho uh, mould, in the Busquets mould, in the Rodri mould. A lot of these players need to be a little bit taller and actually recruitment teams are having to work really hard to get deals over the line for players in that position that are a bit shorter. And um, if City have got Douglas Louise out of Villa with a buyback, uh, they've got Yanahel Herrera out on loan, they, they've got They've got in-house, to an extent, options here if they want to refresh that area in a year's time. And it'd be interesting to see what they do. And um, I'll be honest, you know, I'm really enjoying Douglas Luiz at Villa. He's really blossoming. Herrera the same. I hope those players think really carefully about that potential move back if if they're called back. Because, as you say, the loans are important for playing time and growth. And I would hate to see a player like either of those two get quashed in the depth chart and just not really do anything. Such a good word, quashed. I think that's the first time we've had it on this <laughs> podcast. Um, but I think I'm going to start using it a great deal more. Um, we've 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 had a bit of a Watford theme um, to this to this opening of the podcast, and and I'm going to continue it uh, ever so slightly because there was another transfer in La Liga, um, which I'm very very pleased with, and this is this is my favourite incoming um, to La Liga of, of the summer. And because it's Purvis Estupinian um, to Villarreal for, for 15 million euros from Watford. Um, and I'm fairly sure he didn't make a competitive appearance for Watford, but was signed as an 18-year-old um, from a, a club in Ecuador uh, and then sent on a, a variety of loans. Um, he featured in pre-season for Watford. And I think he had a very good game against Spurs. Um, but... Ultimately, after last year where he had a very, very good campaign with, with Osasuna, there were always going to be clubs sniffing around. And yeah, 15 million was, was the price that, that they deemed um, enough to, to let him go. Uh, and just like Luis Suarez, the, the other one, um, they've, they've, made, they've made quite a good, uh, good bit of money on, on, on these two players that have never actually played for the club. Um, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very happy for Estupinian because I think while it would have been very, very fun to see him in the championship for, for a season, I mean, he would have absolutely tore it up. Uh, it's La Liga is is probably the best suited league for him, um, but also the, the level that he, he's playing at a more competitive level, um, which is only going to be good for his development because he as well is only still 22, 23 years old. Um but yeah, he's, he he has that entire left hand side locked down from left back right up to left wing. Um, he's such a such an industrious player, very much similar to, to Herrera in terms of the work rate does not stop. Um, Sam, I, I don't know if you've seen any of, of Estupinian, maybe last year with, with Osasuna uh, in the clashes that Granada will have had with them. But I mean, what were your sort of initial thoughts, really? Yeah, I mean, my initial thought when I saw the transfer was that's a great piece of business at 15 million. And like, did you see the size of the contract the guy signed? Yeah, was it seven years? Seven year deal. <laughs> what the hell? I mean, we're talking, this is like Saul Negueth style um, lifetime contract stuff. It was incredible. I mean, that, uh, it just did that. I mean, it, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but like of all the, of all the signings to sign a seven year deal, I just thought that was really, that was really weird. But I mean, fair play to women, fair play to Villarreal. They know they've got someone there that's in prime age um, and they can lock him down until what he's, yeah, he's 22. So up to, up to the age of 29, like that's fair enough. I think, I think you nailed it with the description there, which, which he just basically covers the entire flank. Like he is, he is a left sided player. It, be it as a fullback, a wing back, or as a as a left midfielder, he basically just that's his area, the entire flank, and the energy that he provides, and the the burst that he provides on the ball 
is incredible. And I think his crossing from what I saw got got better and better. The delivery got uh, you know what 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 comes at the end of the end of the run got better and better. And I feel like he is going to take another pretty big step forward this year and just just continue to to soar. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the the fact that he's uh, signed a seven-year deal, yeah, he, I mean, it does nail him down for quite a long time. But I think it's good for him to have that security at this point in his career because he's been sent on a, on a series of loans um, and they've been varied. I mean, the, the vast majority have been within Spain, but, you know, he's had to work his way up to that point. Um, I think last season, one of my favourite, favourite statistics was at some point in November or December, I think it was, um, there was uh, there was only one player in the entirety of La Liga who'd played more accurate balls and crosses into the penalty area than both Lilo Messi and Martin Odegaard. And that was Pervis Estupinian. So that is kind of where I sort of started to take a serious interest in, in him. Mm. Uh, and, and yeah, I'm very pleased to see him back in La Liga. Um, and <laughs> I hate to be that guy again, but there's another move that involves a Watford player. Uh, and we're not going to go into as much depth uh, on this one. Um, but he, Cucho Hernandez, um, you know, he, he's also left Vicarage Road this summer. Um, not that he's ever actually been there. Um, but he's been, <laughs> like the others. Like, exactly like the others. Um, he's been sent on another loan, um, this time to Getafe under Jose Bordalas. Um, and, you know, for a Colombian player who's a real handful, I believe in the Scouted Football Handbook, uh, David Cartledge described him as a cannonball. I don't think there's a better club than, than Getafe at the moment. Um, but back to Villarreal. Uh, you know, we, we we saw them sign Stupinian for 15 million euros, but a, a loan move that is kind of has similar shades of you know Martin Odegaard going up through the through the through the gears, you know, from like the likes of Hernavain and then to Real Sociedad, um, is, is Takifusa Kubo from Real Madrid to Villarreal on loan. Um, he, he it's it's a nice little step up for him from from the year that he spent at Real Mallorca last year, where despite them being relegated, he finished on a really strong personal note. Yeah, he did. Um, again, just to just to actually switch back to that list of guests we've had on on, on football ranks, we've we've also had Stu Holden a, a couple of times actually. I mean, I overlap with Stu Holden uh, at a Bleach Report level um, quite a lot, and he is one of the co-owners of Real Mallorca. And so uh, being able to invite the owner of Mallorca onto your podcast to talk about a Mallorca player is actually, that's quite good. Um, <laughs> and Stu Holden, like obviously it was a while ago, but uh, some, some will remember, some maybe won't, was quite the attacking midfielder in his day before uh, injury struck. You know, he was making serious ways with Bolton. And um, when a player like that with the the intuition in midfield that he had sits down and tells me that he thinks Kubo is absolutely awesome then I take serious note of what he has to say and um, yeah Kubo it's a tough season isn't it at Mallorca when you're constantly down there and you're playing you know longish balls and uh, and trying to get him into the game as much as he can but I think as a player he ended up a lot more a lot more rounded last year with the tracking back and the work rate and the the mentality and obviously the, the, the technical qualities take care of themselves I mean to be honest with you after so it was like a what about 12 14 months ago when he made the contentious move over to Real Madrid you remember mm-hmm, and yeah. um i was out in i was out in america and i watched that uh, atletico madrid real madrid friendly at metlife stadium the absolute destruction when uh, diego costa and jao felix just took real madrid apart mm. they brought um they brought kubo on for like the last 20 minutes the first thing he did was lose the ball and Atletico went down and scored. And then he, the second thing he did 
was lose the ball. <sighs> and and I was like, I'd never seen him play. I just knew about the contentious transfer. And obviously, I'm not drawing conclusions from a preseason friendly. But I left that stadium. I was like, huh, what the hell's that about? So <laughs> then obviously, he gets a loan out. I think maybe that may have been something to do with it. And um, over the course of the season, he really grows. And Villarreal... I mean, to be honest with you, like I've already seen Unai Emery taking pelters on Twitter for not starting Kubo. Like his reputation really precedes himself at this point. Yeah. And I really hope they, you know, they temper him and they manage him and you know, give him too much too soon. But I think Villarreal is a really nice step for Kubo after what he managed to to achieve last season. Yeah, I think obviously you mentioned the contentious transfer uh, moving to Real Madrid. You know, after having developed at, at Barcelona as a as a youngster, um, I think you know playing at Barcelona in, in the La Masia Youth Academy, and then you know being with FC Tokyo, uh, and then again Real Madrid. You know, there's never been a point in in Kubo's like short career so far where he's where he had to. Um, you know, he, he was very much up against it. You know, under the cosh, like he will have been with Mallorca. So I think for for on a personal note that was probably going to be very good for his development both mentally physically and and also in his in-game intelligence so i think yeah he could probably bring something um even more to to Villarreal than uh, what he did um when when he first joined real madrid last summer mm. um but now now for the premier league uh, and and perhaps i'm biased uh, but i think that the premier league had had the most intriguing window uh, when it comes down to to under 23 movers um Starting with you again, Sam, which Premier League transfer made you jump for joy and, and click your heels the most? Well, I mean, there are three that I absolutely loved. And, now, these, uh, these weren't the terms. These weren't the terms. We, now, we, we have to go with the one, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> because I, I would have had a longer, long list if I had to pick th- three times as many. Okay, okay. So the one I absolutely loved the most was, was Kai Havertz coming to the Premier League. Um, because I love Kai Havertz. <laughs> I mean, I've been talking about Kai Havertz for like three years and um, he once smiled at me at Leverkusen's training ground and that secured some kind of bond. That right, is, okay. It's unbreakable, I'll tell you that. I mean, he was walking along, going to the training pitch, bouncing a ball and I smiled at him and he smiled back and said, hey, and um, that was it. We've been in love ever since. Uh, <laughs> but Kai Havertz over the last year in particular, last couple of years really, um, has obviously shot to the fore as one of the very best uh, under-21 players in the world as a as a genuine kind of Ballon d'Or potential player in the post-Messi-Ronaldo era. Um, just, a, just a wonderful, wonderful technician. Um, so smooth on the ball, despite his his kind of spindly long frame, the eye for a pass, the the range of passing, the game intelligence, and then of course what we saw over the the end of last season was where he developed into something of a, like a withdrawn forward, and you know able to link play and, and, and turn off the shoulder and, and, and give and go and scoring more goals than ever. I just thought, oh my god, there's absolutely nothing this guy can't do. He even scored a few headers and that they, you know, that put to bed any concerns that perhaps he might be a little bit timid in the air. I mean, I remember one game at Leverkusen, but I think it was against Werder Bremen. They won 4-0 or 4-1 or something like that. Um he nearly knocked himself out scoring a header. And I thought, well if anybody's going to claim that Kai Havertz is a little bit timid in the air even though he's tall and able to win, and I think that puts that one to bed because he basically headbutted someone else's skull to score that one. And, um, you know, I don't think Havertz was the perfect fit for Chelsea just because, well, I think early on, actually, we saw Lampard didn't really know didn't really know what to do with him. Uh, I think we're getting to that point now where Lampard's figuring him out. Um, but really just the opportunity to watch him 
you know, every every week on TV. And then if we ever get back into these stadiums, my ability to go and watch him play in the flesh. You know, I'm, I'm happy to travel hours, mm-hmm. hours to watch Kai Havertz in the flesh. And that's essentially why it comes down to my favourite one is because he thrills me and I want to go and watch him play, if not weekly, then like monthly for sure. And I will be able to do that now that he's in England. Well, there you have it. There, there is the um, the exclusive that, that Kai Havertz has moved from Bayer Leverkusen to Chelsea was not because there was the opportunity to play for a, a historic English club. It was because he wanted to continue the love affair that he uh, <laughs> that he embarked upon with Sam Tai. Um, that is that is quite an outstanding exclusive that we have on the Scottish Football Podcast. Um, but I've I've got two questions for you, and you touched on them ever so slightly there um, about this move. One. Why was he playing on the right to begin with? Oh, and don't even, Joe, and- don't even. <laughs> Joe, I was so angry. Yeah. I was so angry. I mean, and I don't even support Chelsea. <laughs> I was like, I was just, I just didn't, it was so obvious. Like, so something we'd said on, you know, on, on, on the Football Ranks podcast, Dean is our insider and he's got, he's got sources everywhere. And he'd been speaking to, to Chelsea sources that summer and, you know, the Kai Havertz transfer was very much over Frank Lampard's head. It was above him. It was a, it was a case of the front office um, identifying a potentially elite talent, seeing what was essentially a peculiarly clear runway to him. No one else was trying to buy him. Barcelona mm-hmm. were broke. Real Madrid were broke. Man United were put off by the price tag and ruled themselves out really early. Man City didn't feel like they needed a player in that area because they had Phil Foden coming through and Ferran Torres joined for, for very cheap. And all of a sudden, Chelsea were like, oh my God, he's literally just sat there. We probably can't miss this opportunity because next year it won't be here. And I think they did it. And they were like, by the way, Lamps, we've given you Kai Havertz, off you go. And he was like, um, what? And the information we kind of got was that Lampard didn't actually know that much about Havertz. Like he wasn't that familiar with him. So to see him play on the right flank against Brighton to begin with, with Loftus-Cheek through the middle, which by the way, is just totally the opposite way around. I know <laughs> Loftus-Cheek is, is not a right winger, but at least he played a whole season there under Roy Hodgson once. So he has some familiarity with it. Um, and then the next game we see Havertz is up front against Liverpool, which again can make sense because he played there for Leverkusen. But they go down to 10 men. Who does he take off at half time? Why have you taken Kai Havertz off at half time? Like, if you're going to need to thread the needle and, and, and construct an attack that is only three or four passes long to break out from deep and score, Kai Havertz is your man. So it, all of it all of it pointed to the fact that Lampard hadn't really got to grips with what Kai Havertz was as a talent. And finally, over the last couple of games, we've seen him played as the number 10, West Brom uh, and Palace it was at the weekend wasn't it he got an assist in each game I guess one was a penalty win but he's starting to find his groove he's now roaming from the central position left right deep pushing into the box to become the second striker playing on the turn on the spin with some confidence playing more quickly it's starting to come together and that's because Lampard has finally I think got to grips with what he is I I do think it's a bit shocking really that he didn't know what he was to, to begin with. Yeah, he's becoming acclimatised, I think. And to do that so quickly is kind of indicative of how much of a talented player he is because, you know, he's going to do that wherever he goes. Um, You've kind of answered my second, I say kind of, you've absolutely resoundingly answered my second question there, which was, do you think Frank Lampard is tactically innovative enough to get the best out of him while not sacrificing the best of Pulisic, uh, Werner and Tammy? Which I think, reading between the lines, 
I've I've got my answer on that one. Um, I mean, but- look, look, I think I think my concern now has shifted from Kai Havertz to Timo Werner, and that Lampard may not know what he's doing with Timo Werner. And like to be clear, like I, I'm not saying that Timo Werner on the left is a bad idea. I'm perfectly fine with that. We know that at Leipzig he played off a big man in a two, so it was Schick or Paulson, or he played off the left. So like this is fine. Him off the left, off Tammy, I'm completely fine with it. But what seems to be happening is they seem to be building play through Timo Werner and funneling the ball down the left side, possibly because of the presence of Chilwell, to be fair, which I understand. But of course, what you actually want is to have to build play through the other flank, up the right-hand side, through the centre, feed the ball across and allow Werner to ghost into those positions unseen and finish the scraps. And uh, look, it, football's not quite as simple as that. You can't just build down the right, cross it and score every time. But funneling your creative play through Timo Werner is obviously not the right thing to do. And it's just a case of Frank Lampard just kind of getting to grips with everything that he's got on his plate. And I do sympathise with him a little bit because, man, what do you do? Ziyech, Pulisic, Werner, Mason Mount, Havertz, Tammy, Giroud. At a certain point, it was also Loftus-Cheek and Ross Barkley. I'm just like... To be fair, I, I also feel completely overwhelmed as to what the hell I'm supposed to do with all those players. So we'll see. We'll, I'm sure we'll see it shake out properly soon. Yeah, I mean, there's been lots of incomings and outgoings, most of them at Chelsea, as we've just touched on there. But, you know, with, with elsewhere, we've had sort of Ben Godfrey joining Everton from Norwich. Um, Ryan Nuri, fantastic overlapping left back from, from Angers. He's joined Wolves on, on an initial loan. Um, there was one transfer that I think uh, I think that this was in your top three that I, that I rudely cut you off from. Um, there was one transfer that I think probably went a bit under the radar. Um, that was Ibrahim Diallo from from Southampton, um, mm. and I saw a little bit of, a little bit about him on your Twitter feed, Sam. I did have to scroll past some slander about the monumental spectacle that was Newcastle three Burnley one to reach it, mind. But <laughs> it did pique my interest as I had, as I'd heard good things about Diallo, but I'd never seen them myself. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I hadn't really seen him much either until it looked like Southampton were going to sign him. And um, I work I work for Southampton, uh, at least part-time anyway. I, I write for their, their Matchday magazine. I do opposition tactical analysis work uh, for, for a, a double page in the, in the programme. And I write for their website as well. So it really is quite literally my job to know <laughs> Ibrahima Diallo and because he's signing. So I spent last Friday just watching... Ibrahim Diallo just watching breast games and um, what I saw over the course of the day I mean I started off like you know reasonably happy and then by the end of the second full game I was like oh god this guy's a player like I, I this this is a really good signing they've made and I started looking into it a bit more and it's like you know he's anchoring a France under 21 side which has like Moussa Diaby on the wing mm-hmm. and you know you've got your, your Le- the Leipzig boys at the back and I'm like oh my god okay 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 this is like it's the it's the meme from the office it's happening it's happening oh my <laughs> god it's happening and yeah, Southampton have been waiting five or six weeks for a Hoybier replacement and what they're looking for in that in that in that box to box number eight role uh, in their four four two is is someone who can absolutely cover the ground and get up and down the pitch, but someone who is reasonably well rounded and someone who can who is comfortable on the ball, can take the ball and can dictate play. Uh, someone who can track back and track their runners properly and get their foot in and, and, and be combative. And, you know, Hoybier was not perfect for Southampton. There's a kind of misty-eyed view of of what of how good Hoybier was on the ball because he actually just wasn't 
really that good in my opinion, but he was a voracious ball winner, an absolute ball hoover, someone who could turn it over and start attacks quickly. I see that in Diallo. I see him as as good a defender and I think he's more comfortable on the ball. It's, it's, it's a shallow analysis, but it, I think it works for this. I mean, I was looking at some of the statistics from his games that he'd been playing recently. And he's consistently like the midfielder with the most touches and the most passes on the ball. And that, that means nothing without the eye test, but he's taking the onus. And he actually pulls out some quite nice reverse angled passes. First time as well sometimes to really catch defences off guard. So the one thing you definitely can't expect from Diallo is any kind of goal scoring contribution whatsoever. I think I looked up on FB Ref, his total XG for all of last season was 0.1. Nice. Not even per game, it wasn't per 90. The entire season was 0.1. Every shot I've seen him take has gone fucking miles over, mate. But but apart from that, he's brilliant. And for 12, 13 million, whatever it is, I think it looks like a really good deal. Yeah, that's a great deal for sort of that money because essentially that's what they lost Hoybier for. And that was all because, you know, they, they knew they were going to lose Hoybier. You know, he was he was kind of intent on leaving, whether that was to Everton or Spurs where he eventually went. Hmm. Um, so to, to get someone who, as you say, is kind of as good as Hoybier was off the ball is for, for the same money, essentially. I mean, we look at how much Arsenal have spent on Thomas Partey. I mean, I'm not saying that that's a bad move because it's not. It's, it's a very, very good move. But I think that... In terms of um, in, in like defensive midfielders, players that can play as a six or an eight, um, you know the the market is very it, it fluctuates. It really fluctuates depending on how much hype there is around that player, which team they play for. And I think coming from somewhere like from from Brest, you know, the, it, it's not a big club. So 12, 13, 15 million pounds um, is not a, is not a great deal of money to Southampton, but it's an enormous amount for for a club like them. Um, so on Saints, by the way, someone you did not put in your list was Mohamed Salisu. Well, that is very that is very true. Um, I didn't include him because we've 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 mentioned him very much uh, on 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 the previous pods that we've had, uh, and and I did did have did have in the pipeline an idea that I might actually do a Saints episode. Um, but okay, well, we'll leave that there then. But Southampton have been reading your handbooks, okay. Well, and they, I mean, and they, why and wouldn't they, they? And they? They know they know the market very well, thanks to you guys. Because Salasu is a is a very, he's not as it, Diallo's ready to to just drop into the team. Salasu obviously needs the time to acclimatise. A very very young man, experiencing a new culture, and he's only had like one season of like senior football under his yeah, belt. It's, it's madness. It's, it's like there's there's no there's no tread on those tyres at all. It's incredible. But every, again, when Southampton signed him, I, I went and consumed some Real Valladolid games and. I mean, the bones are there for an excellent left-footed centre-back. So Southampton, I think, have very quietly, like, they've quietly nailed this window. Yeah, they've um, done some very good business. They've, yeah, they've, they've signed four players, three permanently, and then Walcott as an extra body on the last day. It's not a top-five window. It's not something people are going to be shouting from the rafters from, like with Villa, with Everton, with Spurs, with Arsenal. Now they've got Partey. The Saints have done really well. I've not been paid to say that. <laughs> get the little disclaimer in there <laughs> we're not endorsing that yet on the scout football podcast um another import from france uh i probably shouldn't say that actually people are wanting to avoid brexit discourse and now i'm talking about french imports on a football podcast <laughs> um wesley fofana uh he joined leicester from calais i mean saint etienne um roughly 30 million euros <laughs> which um again seems like a lot of money for a 19 year old but there must be something in the water in the rhone valley because you know they've sold two teenage centre backs for, for roughly sixty million euros in the past two summers, including William Saliba's move to Arsenal, um, 
And from from what I saw for Fana, because over the summer I watched a lot of San Etienne's preseason games um, for a piece I was doing on Adil Oshish and his move from from Paris Saint Germain, and obviously watched a lot of San Etienne last season to see how they played. But I was always struck by just how comfortable Fofana appeared. And while I'd seen a lot of Saliba from the previous year, Fofana just looked that much more secure, less striking on the pitch as Saliba, but just very, very secure. And I was very pleased to hear that, you know, clubs like Leicester, who are obviously very well, well run in terms of their recruitment and especially with their coaching under Rodgers, um, that they were targeting a player like that. Um, and yeah, I, think- I haven't seen haven't seen Fafana yet, but I did get in touch with uh, with with someone a recruitment analyst at a club just to see do you any idea. <laughs> I wrote, "Where's Fafana? Any ideas?" Question mark was my official intro into who the hell is this guy because it's not someone that I've come across. And they said, "Promising, hyper aggressive centre back will run after duels all day. Very good in the air, suited to be one, suited to be the proactive one in a centre back partnership." So I wondered if that stacked up to to what you've seen from him. Yeah, it was very much so. Um, you know, he was kind of proactive is exactly the word I'd use to describe him. Um, very, very smart in sort of being able to read what opposition's passages of play are going to look like. Um, and I think his transition at Leicester is probably a good club for for that transition at the moment because, you know, you've still got Johnny Evans, you've still got Wes Morgan at the club. Um, Charles Soyuncu is, is still a very dominant player there. But if you put uh, Fofana aside, Soyuncu, who's going to do all your tidying up, who's going to do all that, all, all the all the typical defensive work, the seventies and eighties typical defender. Um, you know, Fofana gets a lot of room to to then be able to contribute to build up play. Um, and I think the way that Rogers, uh, you know, treated Soyuncu when he first arrived uh, two or three, uh, one or uh, two years ago. Um, from from Freiburg and sort of integrated him very slowly. I I I could see very something similar happening with Fofana. And then who's to say that he wouldn't have sort of a, a breakout first six months when he actually does sort of settle into the team. And yeah. whenever sort of Morgan leaves or, or Johnny Evans starts to decline a little bit more. I mean, with Leicester, this is something that's not just um, not just clear with someone like Soyuncu, but uh, they we call it on our podcast we call it the Leicester red shirting technique. Hmm. Um, so it's like the it's like in American football uh, when you basically draft a player that you want to use in about a year's time, they call it red shirting. So you just basically just drop them for a year, but they just learn. And Leicester seem to do this. Um, you know, they, James Justin came in because he had to. Yeah. Uh, but that was obviously a project. Dennis Pratt basically didn't play that much for the first year, but then they get him acclimatized and they get him ready. And Soyuncu is another example of that. So Leicester are really good at forward thinking recruitment and they're really good at knowing what their squad's going to look like in one year's time. And this is probably another example of that because Fafana on the face of it is promising and young and they're pretty strong at centre-back in terms of the first choice duo. So Fafana comes in and play comes into play in six months time and all of a sudden people go oh my god Leicester got way better very quickly it's like that's because they thought about it (laughs) they had the foresight exactly yeah yeah um just there's another centre-back move in the Premier League that I want to finish on for for our Premier League ones um I don't know if this was your third favorite um in fact we'll go with what what was your third favorite move actually uh Regulon ah right okay I was I I almost guessed Ampadu but Regulon We'll go with Regulon for a start. Yeah, go on. Yeah, I mean, Regulon is just, it's just so much fun, isn't it? I mean, like, it, there's definitely a mould of of player that I'm I'm really enjoying watching here. And it's 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 that it's that like all energy, like 
crazy amount of ground covering left back. It's the it's the hype, it's the big personality, big stamina left back plays in such an intense way. And Regulon, we all know from from his time last season at Severe on loan, is just fantastic. Again, like Estupinian, like just covers the whole flank, his energy for days. And honestly, what I've seen from Regulon in the first couple of games for Tottenham as well is is like this fire. And it's put this personality and this intensity. That's exactly what you want to see from 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 a big money signing because he ended up about twenty seven million or so, didn't he? Mm-hmm. But Regulon is is just is just fantastic. He is he is the twenty twenty fullback, and they've just they've played a blinder there. Ampadu is someone who, as I said at the top, like you know, obviously you can't, you don't always get around to seeing all the players. It just depends on what happens. And Ampadu somehow is someone that I. I kind of missed a lot of it. Never the stars never aligned for me to really watch him properly. I mean, when you go on to Leipzig and barely play, obviously that is problematic. If you're if you're looking to watch him play, but um, from what I've seen when he stepped in uh, at centre back, he's looked very composed. I like it a lot, and all of the kind of like four minute reels that I watch of him when he's played for Wales, the way he sort of. Like a like a like a like a younger Gerard Piquet, like sees a sees a gap to move forward with with the ball, move forward into, start to penetrate and start to pull the opposition marking structure apart a, a, a little bit because no one can actually, if you play one up front, you can't cover two strikers. Uh, sorry, well, play one up front, you can't cover two centre backs with a pressing system, and you can start to pull the opposition system apart by just driving into that space and becoming that playmaker from the back. And and Padu looks like he is that player, and that is incredibly valuable. Um, yeah, Sergio. Just going back to, to Sergio Regulon to start with. Um, I'm going to coin the phrase the Spanish Matt Ritchie because he's exactly mm-hmm. the same in terms of just how mu- he must be the most annoying player to train with because he's just constantly so on it. But in a game, you don't want any other player like that on the opposition side. You want him on your team um, because he is just going to work so hard. And I think that that is probably one of the things that um, that Jose Mourinho, you know, identified. Uh, as a player that in a player that he wanted um you know someone who's going to be uh you know just a really hard worker you know i don't know if you've seen the spurs documentary but the, yeah the, i know what you mean the, <laughs> yeah you, yeah exactly you know the, there's a certain word that he described <laughs> that he uses to describe his players um and i'm not going to i'm not going to go 39 episodes and use it on this podcast but that term i think he he it, he adds it to the spurs team which for you know, were, they do appear to be a, a group of very, very nice guys. Regulon adds that, um, and I think the I was reading a bit in the Athletic from Dermot Corrigan about how he, he throughout his youth uh, his, his youth uh, career, you know, he he'd had um, fallings out with with uh, Zinedine Zidane's sons in the youth setup, and you'd have to think, I mean. You're either incredibly stupid or you're incredibly, incredibly driven to be falling out with that man's sons in uh, in your youth teams. But I think he's done fantastically well at Sevilla. I think he'll do just as well with Spurs. I think the the character that he showed to uh, on on his full debut uh, against Chelsea in the cup, um, to you know, to to give away the the goal essentially. Uh, for, for Timo Werner, but then to come back and get the assist and really, really have a strong performance was was great for him. Mm. Um, Ampadu, I think Sheffield United's a good move because I I, I I like Chris Wilder. I trust Chris Wilder with young players. Um, I think he's very good at probably getting the best out of someone who uh, is 
I mean, I was first of all, I was quite surprised that, like you, that he'd had so, so many caps for Wales at such a young age. I just seem to have missed a lot of his football. Um, but I think coming back from from RB Leipzig, what Chris Wilder's going to be sympathetic to that. He's also going to be very very demanding um, because you know th- this team are very well drilled. And now that Jack O'Connell's out injured for uh, much of the season, you know he's probably going to Ampadu's probably going to have to adapt to fit into this back three. Um, better than he would have done in place of someone like Chris Basham or John Egan. So yeah, but essentially exactly the same as what you said. You know that 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 shades of Gerard Piquet that stepping out uh, and and being confident enough to play those passes. I think if we see that from Ampadu in the Premier League, there's nothing to suggest that he can't come back to Chelsea and in a few years' time, you know, be challenging for one of those central central defensive spots. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Um, next up we are in Germany with the Bundesliga uh, and there were a couple of Englishmen to have made the move this summer um, which is a little spoiler as to my favourite Bundesliga move the window uh, but Sam again we'll start with you uh, who, who have you gone for? Yeah I mean I think we've probably gone for the same one here and it's 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 because he's basically just now starting in midfield for Dortmund at like the age of 17 and absolutely rocking the place isn't he? I mean Jude Bellingham is yours Bellingham as well? Absolutely. Yeah, yep. I mean, I mean, I mean, you know, Dortmund have an incredible record with with young players and an incredible trust in young players. And even you know, you've got all the evidence over the last decade staring you in the face. He starts in the, he begins in the starting lineup and is now just like he's just now a starting midfielder. And it still surprises you a little bit just because. To take a player who'd only ever played in the championship, age 17, and just go, yeah, you can start for Dortmund in the central midfield, like arguably the most important part of the field. No problem. Uh, it's just the faith that they show in these players is incredible. And this team are so much fun to watch. And so now you can tune into Dortmund and you can watch an all-English-born attacking quartet of Erling Haaland, Jude Bellingham, Jaden Sancho and Gio Reyna. It's just remarkable. You know, this... Watching Reyna and Sancho and Bellingham in midfield together, it's amazing. And Emre Chan's dropped into centre half on the on the on the backside, the right centre back role, Lucas Pichek's role from last season to make room for it. You've got like Thomas Delaney on the bench. Like, what the hell? There's a lot of teenagers playing in the <laughs> position. How the hell did it come to this? You know, it's a it's an incredible scenario. But Bellingham is already showing he's so sharp, he's so classy, so good in tight spaces. His, his football IQ is is incredible. His quick one twos and his, his, he sees he sees the picture of the game before it happens, and he's just fit right in with those wonderful footballers. So I'm so pleased for Bellingham because you know there was obviously talk of the United move in the summer, and uh, I think we can tell I, we, I think we can tell that he made the right call on that one. Yeah, absolutely, and, and I think from from what I've heard and w- what I know, I know that he's been sort of advised. Strong, quite strongly by his family and and people who are who are looking out for the best for him, and I think that with that strong structure in place, there was only going to be one place for for him to go and and develop properly, and that was going to be Borussia Dortmund. Yes, a big step, but hey, I mean, where else would you where would you, where else would you get this opportunity in world football to play at that level at the top of a top five league in Europe, but also have the the nurturing and development focus um, from from the top down. I think it's excellent. The, cra- think- the crazy thing is, mate, is that like, had he gone to like a mid-table Premier League club, so forget Dortmund and forget Man United, and he's decided, no, I want to play, but I want to stay in England. So he joins, I don't know, let's go with um, Newcastle, West Ham, Palace, whatever. You know they wouldn't be starting him right now, right? He'd no, be on the bench. No chance. But apparently he's fine to start for Dortmund. Exactly. Champions League Dortmund, that is. Yeah. yeah. So it just kind of it just kind of 
conveys just how broken it all is. Um, maybe it's uh, maybe it's about the different pressures that the English clubs feel like they're under, or English managers feel they're under, or what I don't know. But it betrays a real lack of trust in that sort of thing. And it's the old if you're good, if you're good enough, you're old enough thing, which Dortmund have really really embraced. And you know that most of the clubs that would have showed an interest in him this summer wouldn't have done. The only club that I can pick out in the bottom half of the table here that I reckon actually would have just played him was Brighton. Yeah, I was just saying, I was just going to say Brighton. Brighton are probably the, the one that booked that trend. The rest of them, he'd still be on the bench. He'd be playing ten minutes in the Carabao. Uh, it's, it's no good for anybody. So well done to Jude for for going off to Dortmund, and well, he's brilliant. So <laughs> fair, fair enough, and we everyone can see that now. You know that if you joined the Premier League club in January, he'd be starting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's pretty humbling to to those of us who probably still fancied themselves as late bloomers in a footballing sense when then when they were seventeen, isn't it? You know, oh, you know, I just need to fill out a little bit, and and then maybe I'll be <laughs> I'll be playing for the firsts or, or the seconds. You know, nah, nah, no chance. Jude Bellingham's on a different plane altogether. Yeah, I think it's great that he's getting that chance to live abroad uh, and live and play abroad because it's not a case that he's just living there and not actually being in the squad. He's actually playing there. You know, mm. at such a young age, it's going to be so, so ben- uh, beneficial to his footballing IQ, um, to just his personal development as well. And I think having that strong sort of British-born core um, at, at at Dortmund as well is going to help him settle in massively as well. We've already seen that, you know, Erling Haaland and, and Gio Reyna have struck up a great relationship. Um, and I think, yeah, Jaden Sancho, even though he is only 20 years old, is going to be a great role model for, for, for Jude Bellingham, mm. um, which is which is great and also great for the English national team for years to come. Um, but he wasn't the only Englishman um, to, to go over there this summer. Um, Sessegnon, Ryan Sessegnon from Spurs, getting deadline day move to, to Hoffenheim, which is in a way very much a reboot you know, from the chaos that's going down at Spurs. You know, I mean, when isn't there chaos when, when Jose Mourinho is involved, even when it's going well? You know, I think it'll be. I think it'll be a good move for him. You know, slots neatly into that left wing back role there at Hoffenheim, um, pushing Robert Scov further forward. Um, yeah, and I think his physical attributes, especially those that that he uh, that he displayed while he was with Fulham, you know, are also quite suited to uh, Sebastian Hernandez's high pressing approach there, which obviously paid dividends in in the victory over Bayern in the first week of the season. Yeah, I think so. Sessignon is um, he's a curious one for me, and. Um... Ultimately, I consider him a man without a position, at least in Premier League terms, which is obviously going to hold him back a little bit for Spurs because Sessegnon is, um, I'd say he's actually not as quick as as you immediately think he is. He's not, he hasn't got like the lightning speed and I don't think he carries the kind of aura or authority to really just be able to be dropped in and play on the wing. For a, for a club like Tottenham. He's just not there yet. He may be in the future, but he's not there yet. He's also ultimately probably not quite good enough defensively and maybe just not good athletically enough to play as a fullback. And that leaves wingback, which I think he probably is at this stage. So I love the fact that he can go into a system that suits him. But it was very clear to me that there was no role for him at Tottenham and he needed to go and, as you say, kind of just reboot a bit. Because the thing with Sessegnon is that I've just detailed a load of left-sided positions there. But, you know, in, in his pomp at Fulham, when he scored however many goals as Fulham came up, he was essentially, I know he played off the left, but like the, the the player that I compared him to was Thomas Muller because he just used to drift in and ghost into these little spaces and defenders would be like, yeah, everything's under control. Oh my God, Sessegnon's there. Crap, a 1-0 down. Mm-hmm. It, was, yeah. it was one of those. Over and over again, he used to find little pockets of space. He was very interpretive as a player and he scored a lot of goals, not because 
He broke away from defences, not because he ran in over the top, not because he cut in and scored perlers. He got a few of those fine. A lot of them were just inside the box conversions. And he was a smart player, but physically quite unimpressive at that stage. Obviously, 17, like fair enough. The question becomes like what what suits him going forward? Because he's not like he's not, you know, the support striker kind of poacher-esque midfielder role. I mean, Deli Ali can't even get into Tottenham eleven right now, and that's what he is. So Sessignon's got no hope. He's not strong enough to play left back. And he's probably not authoritative enough to play on the wing, given the options they have in Bergvine and, you know, Gio Lo Celso and Lucas Moore and Gareth Bale, maybe, and all those guys. He just ran out of, like, options at Tottenham. And it's not really his fault. No. We just don't know what he is yet still, because his the strengths that he showed at Fulham, you can't embed those into the Tottenham team. I think he's got this really nice, um, nice long stride. Um a nice ability to cover ground. And I think that will eventually set him up really well to become a full-time wingback. So the key here was to get him a role in which he can play wingback. And this really is something to keep an eye on because he is rebooting, as you say, but he's been put in the right spot, which is the most important bit. You've got to judge these loans properly. And I think they have done. Loans are so important when when it comes to you know players at this point in their career where they've got where they've had a lot of football. And I mean Ryan Sessegnon, he probably his first season at Spurs, he probably was just burnt out from all the play that he had at Fulham. Mm. Um, you know, getting getting to go away to Hoffenheim, which are obviously a very good club for youth development as well. Um, obviously, don't have Nagelsmann there anymore, but you know they're, they're not a club who are going to hire um, the, the the German equivalent of a Sam Allardyce. Um, so. You know, he's going to gain something from this loan, absolutely, and and playing in a system which which complements his, as you say, undefined role at the moment um, is probably going to be very good for him. Um, we're going to move on to Serie A now, as I'm very conscious of the time. But just before we do, um, I just wanted to say nine million euros for Mark Rocker from Espanyol to FC Bayern München. That is a piece of business that could be. I think that's the best value for money signing uh, of this window. Um, you know, that's. Uh, I mean, we'll see. We'll see how how good he is for Bayern. But he's just an excellent, excellent player. Um, Riedel Baku swapped Mainz for, for Wolfsburg, which is sort of a little uh, sidestep and a little bit up uh, in the Bundesliga. And and Renier, um, who we didn't mention when we were talking about Jude Bellingham, um, but he's joined uh, Borussia Dortmund on loan from Real Madrid. Um, but I think he'll struggle to get in the side um, because of yeah, that. It's a two, that it's a two year loan, though, isn't it? So it yes, kind of helps exactly. him out a little bit. Um, yeah. Gives him time to bed in. I was a little bit surprised by that one. Uh, probably same as you when I was like, oh, they don't really seem to be struggling for players in the area. But two years, this is clearly a um, a red shirt. <laughs> it's a red it's shirt. It's a red shirt. It? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because you know what, they might they might lose two of that front four in yeah. um, in in the, in the next year. So having Renier there means that you know it's someone who you're not going to have to integrate straight away. Yeah. Um, but Syria next and. Italy didn't really have too many big name, big money incomings from an under-23 perspective. Um, Dejan Kulisevsky's move to Juventus had, had already been tied up in January. Uh, but the one who bucks that trend uh, and does so spectacularly is Victor Osimhen, who started brilliantly at Napoli, um, giving them a real focal point to base their playoff. And they look absolutely brilliant. That is when they're not boycotting matches with Juve due to positive COVID cases, that is. Um, but Ozumen is my favourite move, although not at 80 million euros. Um, who Who is yours, Sam, from, from Syria? Yeah, dude, Ozumen's good, but like that was a lot. Yeah. Uh, that was that was a lot. Um, yeah, there wasn't that much that caught my eye in Serie A, to be honest with you, because um, 
I mean, a lot, a lot of the guys that ended up joining, I just, again, haven't really caught that much. So like I saw Aaron Hickey went, but I, I don't know him very well. Marash Kumbula is someone who I'm excited for, but mostly because I don't really know, I don't really know much about him, but I've heard such good things. Um, Aussie men, I, I love as a player. And the other move that I actually just thought, yeah, that makes quite a lot of sense. And he was a player that had been in the back of my mind all summer. And I thought someone's going to get a bargain here. Someone's going to get a bargain here is Diogo Dalla. Um, mm. to AC Milan on a dry loan, but you never know really with these things. I don't think United really want anything to do with him, which is really silly in my opinion. I, I mean, I don't think he's covered himself in glory at Manchester United, although you would argue maybe the circumstances since he joined have hardly been conducive to any uh, any young player at the fullback position really taking really taking off. Um, I've often thought that if you could just merge Dalla and Aaron Wambasaka together, then actually you'd have the complete fullback who can do everything and he'd be an absolute machine. Unfortunately, technology isn't quite there yet and uh, there'd be some ethical considerations as well. Absolutely. But, uh, yeah, I think, yeah. you know, you might be done for war crimes as well if um, if that was yeah. done, do, not during peacetime. So yeah. Dalek was someone who a couple of months, yeah, a couple of months ago, speaking to his agent, uh, I was like, right, what's happening with Dalek? I was like, well, we're hoping for something, but we're not really sure because United's asking price is so high. And I knew that Milan had had something lined up for well over a month. By the time it came out, they had that one lined up, but they needed to sell someone. And they were they were looking to sell, I think it was Calabria, um, to be honest with you. But they ended up signing, uh, selling Lucas Paqueta uh, to Leon, and that cleared that cleared the cash to take Dalla. And they were all set to they were all set to deal with, uh, to get him. And then Roma came in at the last second and offered a loan with an option to buy or a purchase option. And it nearly screwed this entire thing up, something that had been in place for well over a month. And Milan in the end were like quite, quite happy to get this one over the line. I mean, I do think that even though they had two right backs, they have two right backs, now three, it was definitely an upgradable position. And I think Dalla has so much more to show than he's been able to at, uh, at Manchester United. I remember watching him you know, step into that Porto team and really impress me at left back or right back. And I remember watching him for the Portugal unders and being really impressed with the whip he gets on his crosses. And so I'm really excited to see what he can do in a in a in Serie A in a team that's really on the up. Like I'm a I'm a mm-hmm. Milanista this season. I'm all in on this this collection of talent that they've they've managed to procure. You know, with stretching back last season into the sort of Rafael Leal territory, Ismail Benassa. Like I'm absolutely loving what they're doing. Teo Hernandez is just just great. Um, the Milan project is so much fun and Dalit just adds another layer to it. Yeah, absolutely, certainly. And, and there's there's one player that, that we're not going to get into too much depth on um, who, who also joined Milan. But again, value for money signing, Jens Petter Hauge, um, I hope I've pronounced that right, from, from Norway, who signed for, for Milan for around four and a half million euros from Bodo Glimt uh, in, in the Norwegian top flight, who had, I mean, for, for, for most people who don't sort of take note of, of Norway's domestic football, Glimt have been absolutely dominant. They've been rampant in uh, in, in Norway this season. I don't think they've lost a game, um, and uh, they, they that has largely been predicated on on the the success that that Jens Petter Hauge has has instilled them with. You know, coming off that left hand side, I think he adds so much to to a team in, in Syria, and especially one as you say on the up in in Milan. Um, but Federico Chiesa, as we as we touched on before, uh, is one I left off the original list. Um, but he's a big enough name to to warrant a discussion on. Mm. Um, and I think while while Andrea Pirlo's Juve still seem to be something of an unknown quantity, you know, formations wise, uh, you know, Chiesa fitting in, 
I mean, there's there's been suggestions that he might play as sort of a very attacking right wing back. Um, I mean, it's it would be a strange one, but I can't not see it, if that makes sense. You know, he, he got much better at not taking wild shots from stupidly long range distances. So, you know, hopefully that if he did play a bit, a bit deeper, he wouldn't revert back to type uh, in order to try and get on the score sheet. That is me pleading with uh, Federico Chiesa to not do that because his <laughs> shot maps have been... Uh, they've been horrendous at times, but last <laughs> season there were there were a few instances where instead of going for the long range strike, which he can do, you know he's very very capable of popping one off and hitting the back of the net. But he 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 decided that you know what I'm actually going to apply a bit of candor here and play one twos, try and get in the box myself and and finish from a from a more um, favourable angle. Um, I, I don't know about you, Sam, but where do you see Kiesa fitting into sort of this this new look? more youthful Juve side. Well, firstly on Chiesa and his his habits as as you've basically detailed his habits, there. Yeah. I mean, so with Chiesa I've noticed something well, I think I've noticed something. You can never really 100% tell, can you? Um but he is an extremely intense and fiery character. Um it's obviously there's a lot of passion that runs through his game and there's a lot of passion uh, that underlines him representing Fiorentina, you know, the the club that's so dear to him. And let's be honest, Fiorentina during the Chiesa era, the Federico one, um, they've been a bit rubbish, haven't they? Or like yeah. they've been underwhelming. Like they nearly got relegated like the other the other year somehow because they didn't win a game for about three months. And um, ultimately, what I've decided I see in Chiesa's game at Fiorentina when he's taking those silly shots and taking these silly risks, I think there is a fundamental lack of trust in his teammates. And there was only about two players on his team that he was actually comfortable passing to. So Frank Ribery was one when he was fit, but then he got injured. And the other one was was Dusan Vlahovic. And everybody else, I swear, he was looking up and going, could pass it to you, but I don't think you're very good. So I'm going to take a shot instead. And there was like an, there was like an impetulance to, to what he was doing on the pitch. And I think it bore down to like a severe lack of trust in the players around him. I think he just correctly identified that he's way better than everybody else. And what it led to was was strange, strange games from him where he made odd decisions. I'm convinced it was because he didn't trust anybody. Now, obviously, that takes a turn at Juve where he gets to go and play with some pretty good players. By the way, the um, the Chiesa thing as well, I, I was lucky last year I was able to spend a day with Fiorentina training uh, in New Jersey. And, Amazing. Um, so I, I spent and I watched the entire drive. I was back in the, in the Vincenzo Montella era. So me and my co-host, Jack Collins, were stood there um what basically watched the whole thing from start to finish uh we did um there was a rondo thing that we filmed for for bleacher report which included biragi uh david hanko um ricardo sotil you know, you know ricardo sotil yep, yep he broke my sunglasses <laughs> he we were playing um we were waiting for the rondo thing to be set up and we were playing keepy ups uh in a little circle and he Gave me a really difficult, really difficult ball. He fired the ball at my chest, and it was a really difficult one to deal with. So I chested it, and I had my sunglasses clipped over the top of my t-shirt, hanging down into my chest. You know, as you do to store them. Yep. And it, they just it, it obliterated them. And um, I DM'd him and asked for asked for a, a reimbursement, and he's ignored me. So, um, you know, I believe that's why Fiorentina have been doing poorly. It's bad karma. But it's, bad, uh, it's yeah. actually bad karma for, for karma. a pair of sunglasses. But, but during these training sessions, I saw Chiesa. I saw him at his like at his rawest form in training and he is one intense guy. 
he takes he he performs to the highest level even in training even in drills like his agility shocked me like he's such an athlete it is remarkable and in the training sessions that they had they were playing like six on six or whatever every time he missed a chance he went absolutely crazy at himself he was screaming at himself he and i was like dude it's like it's not not just training it's pre-season training like you're, you're playing an exhibition game against benfica in two days it's cool man don't worry he was the most one of the most intense characters i've ever seen I mean, to be that upset with yourself about missing chance after chance in training, it doesn't matter, mate. Don't worry about it. But anyway, back to the point, it's like he takes it seriously and he didn't trust anybody. That changes at Juve. And I mean, you might be right. He might end up playing as an extremely attacking wing back because they're quite weak in that area. Quadrado can do it. I don't think Danilo's any good at all. Um, he played a bit of right centre back anyway in the first game. So we'll have to see how that pans out. Um but also, I'm sure you've noticed, I mean, even with Costa gone, like Juve are definitely lacking top-tier wingers. Mm-hmm. Um, because I don't think Kudaseski is a winger at all. I think he's he's too big. No, he's not. Um, and he can play there and he did very well there for Palmer. But that's that was purely and simply because Palmer won one of the best counter-attacking, um, counter-attacking sides in the division. So, you know, that he, he wasn't really, you know, taking on a, t- a typical winger's role. Um, he's he, Kulusevsky, I can see playing sort of in the, the, the role behind the two strikers, two strikers in, in air quotes, um, or as one of the front two. I, th- mm. I think that, that that does allow for, you know, those those wing backs, um, for want of a better term, to bomb on and support those attacks. Very similar to, to how Liverpool support the attacks. Yeah, massively. So I think with, uh, with Kulusevsky playing, I've pegged him as an 8, a 10 or a 9. Um, I don't think he's an eight, but I actually think he'd be, I think he could do it. Um, but I think he's a 10 or a nine in a, in a partnership. And that first game he played up front with Ronaldo and they were both able to split wide left and right and then come back in. And it, it had a, had a really nice feel to it. I think he can play either of those roles. And so if you take him out of the wing core and Douglas Costa, who to be fair, wasn't even really up to standard, I would say uh, for Juventus. Now he's gone as well. What are you left with in the, in, 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 in the wide areas? I mean, I'm probably uh, Bernadeschi is okay. Hasn't really panned out as, as you want. So Chiesa actually sure he, he can become a, a wing back fear on Tina time would actually, uh, would actually tell us that he could even play as one of those front two, yeah. but really what he actually does as well simultaneously is give them, a potentially elite winger that they just don't have. And so the options for Chiesa are there. And I actually thought the fee for him was quite cheap. It was like a 10 million loan fee with a 40 million obligation, 50 million euros for Chiesa all day. Why were United not looking at that one month ago? You know, that sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah, it, it's it's a strange one, but I think there were a few deals in Italy, like the Sandro Tonali transfer to to Milan. You know the 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 stipulations of how that that fee will be paid. You know, t- again, ten million loan fee up front, um, thirty million uh, at the end of the season obligation, and then potentially ten million in add-ons. We spoke about myself and Steve. We spoke about this on a few of the podcasts actually um, about Tonali, and with I mean realistically you're getting a player for 50 million who could anchor a midfield for a decade the same with Chiesa you know you, you look at the likes of Frank Ribery and Ian Robin they were still and still I mean less so now but in the up until the last few years you know they were they were still very, they were elite level wingers at 32 33 Chiesa's what 30, 22 23 now mm. he's got a lot of he's a he still has a lot to give and he's and I think if he's playing with better players, I didn't actually consider that, you know, maybe he was doing the Hatem Ben Arthur of, I know I'm better than every single one of you. I'm just going to do it myself. Mm. Um, 
if he's I mean, doing... I, I don't know for sure, but that's that's the vibe I got. And no, it makes it, when, sense. When, it does make you, sense. When you put that player alongside better players, they become exponentially better. And I'd argue that we're actually seeing that with Aston Villa and Jack Grealish right now. Like he mm-hmm. was awesome last year and he wasn't selfish either. Like he, he, he did his role for the team, but give him Ross Barkley and give him Matty Cash's diagonal balls. And all of a sudden, Grealish looks like one of the best players in the Premier League. And a focal just, point in Ollie Watkins as well. Let's not yeah, forget. Yeah, Watkins runs into the channels. Exactly. As, uh, have been superb. And they've really they've really allowed Grealish to drift into these spaces that just weren't there. Because you know, Samata was just stood around uh, end of last season. So again, it's about elevating uh, you know, Grealish's game. And, and the same, will be ha- same, I think, will happen for Chiesa by just surrounding him with better players. Right. Well, we spent a lot longer on Syria than I envisaged, um, but um, <laughs> we're going to finish very swiftly with a bit of Liga. Um, apologies if you're a Liga fanatic, but there are a few interesting moves in France. Um, the, the one that I felt should have had a lot more fuss over it than it did was, was Moise Keane's loan to PSG from Everton. And to me, that's, that's a perfect opportunity for him to reset, rebuild and, and just regain some confidence that no doubt has been, has been chipped away at Everton. Um, I like his attitude. I, I even, you know, even playing second fiddle to Mauro Icardi, he's going to get plenty of time on the pitch. You know, might even end up starting if Icardi does something typically Icardi and falls out with the fans or gets his agent, who's also his wife and ex-partner of Maxi Lopez, who played with Icardi. You know, it's, it's all a bit of a mess. You know, if if if, if she ends up uh, saying something which is a bit, then, you know, uh, there's, there's, there's potential there for, for fireworks. But, I, I quite like that Moise Keane move because, again, he's going to be a player who's playing with uh, elite-level players, um, and that's not to say that Everton this season aren't. But he's going to be—he's going to have—you know—he's going to have game time there, um, and I think he'll do well. But Sam, for, for five out of five leagues um, that we've covered, who's getting a, a ten out of ten for for their league move? Um, if you'd have asked me this at the point of transfer, I would have said Jonathan David to Lil, but he's had a, I mean, he's getting there, but it was a bit of a slow start. And since he's moved and since the, the, the slight slow start has been dragging on, I mean, this is probably at this point, like it's, it sh- this shouldn't be happening, but I'm still like Florentino Luis's biggest fan. Mm-hmm. And he hasn't really done anything over the last 18 months to really back that up in any way. So I'm just kind of stubbornly nailing my colours to the mast on him a little bit. But I do think that if he can avoid some injury issues and develop into the player that he has the potential to be, he is just one of those absolutely dominant, tenacious number sixes that every club at the top at the top table of world football wants. And for him to get out and and play and play on loan at Monaco. It's a big opportunity for him. And as kind of like a stock low, kind of buy low move from Monaco, this is a really good pickup. I like this one a lot. Yeah, he's been freed. He's been freed from the the, the chains of, of Benfica where he was just, he was kind of ostracised from the first team um, for under Bruno Lage for some for some reason. Um, haven't really got to the bottom of that. But now he's going to be playing, you know, alongside Cesc Fabregas, Aurelien Chouameni, Monaco. Um, you know, in fact, he'll probably be be playing in place of one or the other. But at least he's just away from Benfica for a year, um, in, for 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 a personal uh, for personal reasons as well. You know, he gets mm. to experience another club, another environment. Um, and who's to say that you know, without European football this year and PSG being a bit shaky to start the season, you know, 
can Monaco possibly do more of a, a 2016-17 all over again? Um, I, uh, I think it's a long shot, but I think they've built a reasonably decent squad. Um, it just depends on whether they can they can turn that into a, into match winning form. Yeah, I mean they've started a lot stronger, obviously, than they did in the previous years. I know they haven't oh, yeah. been perfect, but like they have at least they haven't dug themselves a hole they can't get out of. They're they're sort of treading water near the top. Ten points, isn't it? Uh, ten points. Yeah, just checking. The problem they've got there is, of course, is that Ren. They've lost some players, Ren. Um, over the course of this uh, this summer, they've they've man- they've done very well wheeling and dealing just to basically stand still or tread water. I think, mm-hmm. uh, you know, losing Gabriel, replacing with Sven Botman, goodbye. You know, Jeremy Doku in for Rafinha, that sort of thing, and Martin Terrier is a really good player. I can't believe they've let him go, Leon, for ten odd million. But um, Lille and Ren and Marseille have all put together some pretty exciting teams, and so I don't think the path is towards that top echelon is actually as clear as it was back in uh, 2017 or so so it is going to be a real challenge for them but they've given themselves a chance like it's been a good window and it's been a reasonable start so why not absolutely um well if if you uh if you want to hear more on on Liga, then we do have uh, a podcast episode with uh, julian laurent um, from earlier this summer and also one with Mohamed ali uh, on marseille um those those on episodes on psg and um, marseille are free uh, on on the scouted football podcast on spotify and apple pods and anywhere you get your pod platforms um but if you haven't checked out the work that sam does uh, please do so. Um, you know he's he's a fantastic football journalist, and if you if you haven't heard what he's had to say in in such great length and and with you know the words such as quashed uh, <laughs> and uh, nailing his colours to the mast and all these lovely little metaphors and, and terms, um, then if you didn't know already, he is absolutely fantastic at what he does. Uh, and and whatever he embarks on next, um, p- do follow everything that he does because he's uh, as equally a great bloke as he is a football journalist. Um, you know, and if you want an endorsement, uh, the the BR Football Ranks pod is is one of my personal favourites too. I mean, he just you know reeling off the list of names that that they've spoken to. Uh, I'm sure that wherever uh, Sam, Dean, and Jack um, find themselves, they'll uh, they'll be they'll be doing very similar excellent work. Um, but Sam, thank you very much to to you for for giving up your time today for for coming onto the Scouted Football Pod. Um, it's an absolute pleasure to to speak to you. But do you have anything else that you'd like to plug to whoever's listening? Any sort of side projects? Much else in the pipeline? And when people will be seeing you and your cat, whose name you'll have to remind me of, uh, where they'll be seeing uh, seeing the, the pair of you again. Uh, well, thank you very much for the for the endorsement there for for BR and for myself. I appreciate that. Uh, I've enjoyed enjoyed speaking to you about this, and I'd be eager to come on any time if you can put up with my lengthy anecdotes. Um, then we're, we're we've got a second date uh, already in the bag, my friend. Um, BR football ranks is 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 not going to be much longer for about a week, but the podcast continues into a new chapter. It will be called something else. It will be hosted somewhere else. And uh, if you're interested or you're already a listener and you're just finding out via the Scouted podcast instead, well, don't worry, we're not we're not leaving, um, but we are launching something of a venture, the three of us ourselves, which is very exciting. And it will be revealed next week. So if you're remotely interested, then take a look. You can follow me on Twitter, Football. You can follow the podcast on Twitter, which is at Rank Squad. And uh, I guess all is revealed. And that really, that's the only side project I have to plug because it's actually taking up 100% of my time right now. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, particularly during the international break where Southampton don't require anything from me. But uh, once again, thanks for having me on. 
Yeah, the anecdotes are the best part. I think as long as you run it past Kai Havertz, um, you know, the, if that second date is, uh, is, is permitted by him, <laughs> then I think we'll certainly be taking you up on that offer. Um, but no, thank you very much for coming on. Um, that is all from us on the Scouted Football Podcast today. Um, it's been a pleasure to bring you Sam Ty, Mr. European Football himself and, and his walk through the various under-23 movers and shakers from this summer's transfer window. Um, I've been Joe Donoghue. This has been the Scouted Football Podcast. Thank you for listening. Um, remember to like, rate, subscribe, review, follow us on Twitter, share our work. And if you really like what we do, please consider supporting us by subscribing to our Patreon or, or buying a book. The links are in our bio uh, on our Twitter page and, and Instagram pages. But that's all. Stay safe and bye for now.